Welcome to the MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference podcast, presented by ESPN and 42 Analytics. This is Jessica Gelman, who along with Daryl Morey, co-founded and chair the conference with a fantastic group of MIT Sloan students each year. We are thrilled to announce the launch of this podcast network to add more avenues to grow awareness and innovation around analytics and sports. We are excited to make the panel discussions from our 2019 conference, which covers a wide range of sports and analytics topics available via podcast for the very first time. Thanks for listening and enjoy. Hey everyone, uh, we're about to get started. So I just wanna welcome everyone to the 2019 Sloan Sports Analytics Conference. My name is Eric Lee. I'm a first year MBA student at MIT Sloan. And it's my pleasure to announce our panel, our, our, uh, panel today, Sports Myth Busting. The panel is going to be moderated today by Stephen Dubner, host of Freakonomics Radio, and Jason Concepcion, senior creative at The Ringer. All right, take it away, guys. All right, thank you. Um, thank you, Eric. Um, big thanks to Jessica Gelman, Dara Mori, all the amazing MIT Sloan students who put on this um, great extravaganza. Um, can we just see a show of hands quickly? Um, anybody here listen to Freakonomics Radio kind of reliably? Okay, cool. Great. So um, if this panel goes well, you will hear this as an episode eventually in Freakonomics Radio. And if it Ooh. doesn't, you will have the privilege of being the only people to have ever heard the panel. <laughs> um, we may occasionally have to start and do something over, but we only have one hour and a great co-host and fact checker who you'll meet in a minute and five fantastic guests. So we're going to just try to get in as much as we can. Um, at the very end, if I mess up, which happens, uh, I may need to, you to sit for a couple retracts, so that'll just be artificial. We also need to grab some room tone, which is basically the sound of the room with nobody talking. So let's do that right now. If for like 10 seconds, we could just sit in awkward silence together, please. Beautiful. Best silence I've ever heard. Thank you. Um, we're ready to go. Yeah, you can clap. No, nah, don't clap. We don't have any time. Um, we are ready to go, so quiet down back to zero, please. And then rip. As soon as you hear silence, you can count us down. Thank you very much. Hey there, I'm Stephen Dubner, and today Freakonomics Radio is coming to you live from the MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference in Boston, Massachusetts. And joining me as co-host from The Ringer, please welcome Jason Concep... Sorry, I'm going to... It's okay. That it's fine. It's close enough. It's also bad because I didn't tell you that we're not actually live. So you figured that? We're recording? This will be a, a podcast at some point in the near future. But I also just did that poorly, so I'm going to do it again. Hey there, I'm Stephen Dubner. Today Freakonomics Radio is coming to you from... Hey there, I'm Stephen Dubner, and today Freakonomics Radio is coming to you live from the MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference in Boston, Massachusetts. And joining me as co-host from The Ringer, please welcome Jason Concepcion. Thank you very much. Jason is host of The Ringer's NBA desktop and co-host of the hip pop culture podcast Binge Mode. So Jason, easy question to start. Which Game of Thrones character would make the best NBA general manager, and why? Uh, Tyrion Lannister, his uh, tenure as Hand of the King was a triumph. Great organizational mind uh, and out-of-the-box thinker. I think he'd be really great with the salary cap. Excellent answer. <laughs> Joining Jason and me as our live fact checker, would you please welcome Mike Maughan? Mike is head of Global Insights at Qualtrics and co-founder of Five for the Fight, the campaign to eradicate cancer. Uh, Mike, 
what would you say has been your greatest career athletic achievement? Oh, I mean, I have so many. Uh, I grew up playing football, baseball, tennis, but my uh, book club suggested I tell you that I was the spelling bee runner-up. But the joke's on them, I wasn't the runner-up, I got out in the first round. <laughs> and, and what word did you go out on? Analytics. <laughs> All right, let's get on with it. Our format today is very simple. Here's the way it works. The MIT Analytics Conference every year gathers some of the brightest people from all realms of sport. And we're going to bring a few of them on stage, one at a time, where Jason and I will ask them obnoxious questions or whatever else comes to mind. Mike will simultaneously be working uh, his Google machine to make sure they're not lying. And when it's over, we should all be a little bit smarter. Our first guest is the performance coach for the US men's national soccer team. Would you please welcome Darcy Norman? Going. Hey, Darcy. How are you doing? Thanks for being here. Thank you, guys. I am curious um, about injuries in sports, uh, so you seem like a good person to ask of that. You know, <laughs> you in, didn't see my uh, giddy up in the hip on the way up, did you? I did see you uh, taking the stairs gingerly. Um, was that recent? Uh, no, it's a long-term thing. Yeah. All right. So you're qualified. Um, injuries strike me as obviously important, but to me at least, and I may be totally wrong, they also seem pretty random or at least unpredictable. So is that true, or have science and analytics started to make injuries any more predictable? I don't think you really uh, predict it. Obviously, nothing is 100% predictable. I shouldn't say nothing. But you can, it's, we like to say risk mitigation. So obviously, there's best practices. If we can keep things in order, uh, it's when we start making emotional decisions, get guys to do too much, or get people to do too much too quickly, or whatever they can handle, put them under circumstances that they can't uh, um, manage appropriately, then obviously, the risk goes up. Zion Williamson uh, recently exploded out of his Nike shoe like Godzilla stepping on a grass, uh, like a piece of grass, a tuft of grass. Um, what kind of role does equipment play, and is there any particular brand, as sneakerheads will sometimes opine, that right. causes more injuries than others? Uh, I'm going for a sponsorship deal here. Let's see it. <laughs> the, um, Gosh, I mean, equipment, what you use certainly plays a role. It all plays a role. Um, and that's where your foot in those particular sports interact with the ground. So how that interaction is that, happens. Is that the foot in the ground? Is, that's, is that a regular interaction? Uh, you would hope so, I think, for the sports that uh, it's appropriate for. The, uh, so obviously, all, that, all that, those pieces help or have an impact in the situation. Um, and so it is a huge part of it. I think sometimes, or a lot of the time, uh, at crucial times, can get overlooked. We just assume that it's going to be good and everything's going to be right. But obviously, it's another piece of the pie that we have to keep our eyes on and make sure it's up to, uh, up to quality. Jason, you'll notice uh, Darcy did a pretty good job it's dodging great. your question entirely. It was, yep. like the, it was like Neo in the Matrix. Did you want to name? You don't want to name a. You don't uh, name. I'm not going to name. What if I say like sneaker brands and then you just kind of slightly nod, but it won't show up on the podcast? They Same. won't hear it. <laughs> or like rhymes with shmuma? Uh. <laughs> All right, let me, let me ask you a more general question. Would it be better to choose a sneaker that explodes on impact or does not explode on impact? Ooh. Well, I think if the explosion is to divert some attention so you can maybe get a shot off, <laughs> I would say it's very, uh, it's very circumstantial. Um, what about, so this is a question that um, I've heard athletes get upset about, um, but you look not that fast or strong, so I'm going to ask you. <laughs> wow. Um, 
Well, he hobbled a little bit. He up did. The steps, he did so. look. He did look a little lame. What would you say is the relationship or correlation between athletic skill and injury? Oh, gosh, yeah, I think there is one to how much, I don't know, but uh, like if you take two opponents, one's more skilled than the other, there's that anticipation of the person that you're going against. If you make a move that you think, okay, normally the person that I should be facing would understand the move that I'm making and there's this um, back and forth, you know, then it works out. But if you start playing with people that are underskilled, they might think like, oh, he's going that way, I'm gonna stand up where the person that's a skilled makes a move, is gonna go, and then they get stepped on, kicked, whatever the case may be. So there's certainly some relationships there, and I know I hear our athletes talk about it all the time. If we play a less skilled opponent, it's frustrating for them because they typically get a few more bumps and bruises. So the, the bigger process. danger is when it's a le it's a skilled opponent against a less skilled in in, in soccer at least. I would saying. think so. Yes. Yeah. I don't have the numbers, but um, you often hear proponents of the older days in a particular sport wax nostalgic for the time when athletes had weekend jobs and smoked cigarettes and ate just raw meat. Um, Elgin Baylor famously averaged 38 points a game while in active duty with the Army Reserves. Uh, was there something about, is there, is there anything to that? Was there something about that kind of uh, older lifestyle that was somehow healthier? I don't know, the older lifestyle is still with uh, a lot of athletes that I see is still present today. So uh, some of those people haven't given it up. Um, but I think, you know, at the, the time that you're trying to play, the intensity, the repetition of the games, certainly uh, removing some of that stuff, trying to live by the best science we can, uh, gives you the best opportunity for success. And cigarettes are bad for athletic? For athletic I wouldn't endeavors? think they're in your favor. Maybe for, you know, you get a couple puffs, open your lungs for one game, but yeah. for the long-term scenario. Juuling oh, for the younger, for the younger people out here? What about juuling? What's that? Juuling? Juuling. Juuling? Juuling. I don't know if I'm familiar okay, with juuling. Okay, that's okay. Let me just ask you finally, before we throw it to, to Mike for some fact-checking. Um, so you are the performance coach for the U.S. men's national team. Correct. So I can't think of anyone better in the world, or at least better in the world who's on stage right now at least, to explain <laughs> why the U.S. women's national team is awesome and the men are dreadful. Yeah. Wow. Uh, that's a fair question. You know, you go results are results. And so we have to step up our game and, uh, you know, they set a high bar and we got to live up to it. And hopefully we'll be doing that in the next few years. Neo back in the matrix with the bullet time. <laughs> Mike Mon, um, Darcy Norman has been telling us about the state of injury prevention generally now, claiming that exploding shoes can be useful and that mm -hmm. cigarette smoking is awesome if you are an athlete. Can you tell us if all that checks out, please? Yeah, so a couple of things. It's not just about the equipment, it's about the employees who are working for the companies. So if you remember recently, the wonderful satirical newspaper, The Onion, posted a story with the headline, Nike fires eight-year-old shoemaker responsible for Zion Williamson injury. <laughs> We're very grateful that they've corrected that uh, problem. Another thing about predicting injury and genetics, uh, collagen, it's found out, is a key component of our tendons and ligaments, and the British Journal of Sports Medicine published a study that showed that there are specific collagen genes that make you more or less likely to be injured. Athletes who have torn their ACL are four times as likely as uninjured athletes to have a blood relative who suffered the same injury. So some people are actually born more injury prone and some less so. Mike, are you, in, uh, excuse me, Darcy, are you increasingly using blood testing and in injury detection and or prevention? 
Uh, the athletes do do blood testing for various markers that we're looking for to help add uh, nutritional supplementation, understand how their body's operating. So yeah, we are using uh, that to some degree. Excellent. Darcy Norman, thank you so much thank you for guys. coming to be on Freakonomics Radio Live. Our next guest is one of the best point guards in basketball history, a three-time WNBA champion, four-time Olympic gold medalist. Please welcome Sue Bird. What's up? What's up? Hey, Sue Bird. Hi. We know you've played for the Seattle Storm since 2002. You've also been doing some scouting recently for the NBA's Denver Nuggets. We also know that in a poll of WNBA general managers asking them which player would make the best head coach after playing, you were the overwhelming winner. So, so I'm really curious. You can clap for that. All 12 of them. <laughs> so I'm really curious. Um, generally, how big of a fan of analytics are you as a player? And do you think you'd be more or less? Or how would that differ once or if you move into a coaching or GM role? Um, I think as a player, I am a big fan of it. Um, I think it's very, it can be touch and go based on what player can digest. So it's like if I'm playing for a coach that's heavily into analytics, I love that they're at home studying it, but I probably only want like bits and pieces of that. Otherwise, it might be overwhelming. So I think as a coach, I'm definitely going to have, if I ever do become a coach, it's analytics going to be 100% a part of my game plan, but hopefully my playing side will understand that I have to kind of translate. Can you give one quick example where you've used analytics personally, either something that showed that you, were, you had an opportunity or maybe a flaw? Um, so I definitely shoot the ball going left better. Um, just the way it is, the numbers show it. And did so, you not know that before though? Um, before you saw I mean, the it's like one of those things where once the number came to me, I was like, yeah, that makes sense. I'm really, I'm much more comfortable going left. Um, so yeah, so in my off season, I try to work on going right a little bit more. Um, I try to extend my range, um, little things like that. As a man, I thought it was important that I explain how biases against women shape our reality, but then I, you were here, so I, I want to ask you, how, does, um, how do those systemic biases shape uh, the world we experience? I, I actually didn't hear the first thing you said. Oh, I, I just was trying like to mansplain man, misogyny. So just how does being in a yeah? How does it? I, how does it? Uh, perhaps you should have been. Uh, we should have had a female head coach probably a long time ago, or a uh, female uh, front office executive a while ago. Um, I'm always interested in esports because there's a realm where physical advantages between genders don't matter, literally don't matter, and there are very few integrated teams. Right. Uh, and it seems like the answer why is pretty obvious. So I just wanted to get your yeah, perspective. Um, I think we all feel it, right? I think um, for a long time, men have just been in the positions of power to make decisions, and so it's what we know. And a lot of times you do things in your everyday life, in sports, whatever the case is, you don't even know why you're doing it. You're just doing it, you know? And I think it's, it's been great to be a part of um, an era where we're kind of starting to question that, especially as a, a female athlete, somebody who, I play in the WNBA, we're trying to get that, you know, get that league rolling even more. Um, to, to, to question things and to challenge status quo and to not take, you know, no for an answer and, and kind of push limits. So it's a balancing act for sure. As an athlete, do you get just sick of being asked questions about being a female athlete? Kind of, yeah. yeah. So can I ask you one more though? Sure. Okay. 
Um, but this, I, I mean, I, I have this question, um, I want to ask this question in, in um, appreciation of the fact that it must be a pain in the neck, but, um, but I thought you might have something interesting to say about it. So there's a lot of academic research in different realms that shows that in general, men and women, men are more competitive than women, okay, in different business settings and in test taking, blah, 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 blah. Other studies say that that research um, shows a male bias and that in fact, women may be more competitive than men. Again, it's all case specific, um, but especially when women are competing against other women as opposed to co-ed. But, but rather than asking you to settle that matter per se, which oh is, you day. know, it's complicated, I, I would love to know um, what you have to say about um, women's competitiveness and how it may be different from men's from what you've seen. Yeah, um, I think a, a quick way to answer that is, is to use examples. And I think now you hear a lot in um, the media of maybe, you know, uh, we'll use Katie and Draymond, right? Like they, they get in this big fight, everyone sees it, it had like, you know, and then a lot of the response to it is like, what do you mean? That's every day in the locker room. Oh, our teammates are fighting all the time. So in my experience, yes, I've been on teams where there's been verbal altercations. I have maybe seen one physical one in my entire time. And I just think women are very competitive. I think there is a bias in that. Um, I think they just go about it a different way. They, they can, um, I don't know, they just have a different way of, of handling those conflicts, of handling that adversity when it's with their teammates. It's, I don't know, I mean, they say if women ran the world, there'd be no war, right? So I think there's a, there's a part that, that you see in sports that we just were not as quick to use our fists. If there'd be no war, though, there'd probably be no sports because sports started out of war. So would that be on balance better? <laughs> Man, I thought we were, we were going to do the hard hitters. So yeah, yeah, yeah. You're going right, to right. let, me, let me slide. Why are men so emotional? <laughs> Why are men so emotional? <laughs> Tinder? I don't know. <laughs> Hey, do you have an answer for why the U.S. MNT is so much worse than the U.S. Women's National Team? It's a great. Um, <laughs> and you have a little yeah, inside-ish no. knowledge, probably. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, some inside knowledge. Um, based on what I know. Um, so I think women in this country, I mean, we talk about wanting to, like, advance sports, but it's actually, it's, it's clearly we're supported in a lot of ways, especially growing up. So from what I understand, because women's soccer, as, as, as a, a young kid, you're supported, you have places to play. I don't think it's like that in other countries. So other countries, even though soccer, football, is incredibly popular for women, for girls, they just don't have that support. So even a country like Brazil, where they're just like naturally talented, mm. they don't have the same um, resources, the same facilities, whatever the case, coaching. So I think women's soccer is, is that's why. And also maybe in America there's more choice sports-wise, maybe some athletes are playing basketball, hockey, this, that, the other, and not soccer. Can I obnoxiously ask you one more gender question? Yeah, I know it's course. really not Is fair. Is I'm here? No, well, <laughs> no, you're here because you're a great basketball player, okay, but you happen good. to be female, and honestly, with this show especially, this is a total sidebar that we'll cut, but for this show, especially doing um, you know, economic analysis and social science stuff, it is really hard to get female guests on the show who super, super know their stuff. And often they turn us down because it's kind of the same dynamic of men. Like this, any stupid man is willing to talk into a microphone <laughs> as evidence. I mean, right. Um, <laughs> but many brilliant, com uh, competent women turn it down. And yeah. so, it's, you know, there's a complicated dynamic. So unfortunately, I'm going to drag you into one nah, more question. Cool. All right. So women's sports, uh, professional sports generally draw smaller audiences than men's, much smaller in most cases, though not always. 
And female athletes generally earn much less than male athletes. So again, not always. So as you see it, are female professional athletes earning what the market will bear, will, will reward them? Or do you think there is a wage penalty for female athletes? Um, the way I see it, um, I, don't, I don't ever, you know, if I'm entering some conversation with, you know, a CBA talk or, you know, trying to figure out our salary structure, I never talk about it like, we need more money, we got to pay us more. I view it as there needs to be investment. Like, there needs to be investment in marketing. There needs to be investment in, in, in all kinds of different ways. And there's something about male sports where people just invest. They, they love it. It's a, I, I personally think it's like a social status thing. Like, I'll mm. go to, we'll use soccer, actually. I'll go to a Seattle Sounders game, and, like, a play will happen, and the guy is, like, clearly off sides. And the whole place is like, what the hell? And I get it. You're a fan. But I'm like, I don't even think they know the rules. Like, they're just here because they got to tailgate, and they're drunk, and they're having fun with their friends. And there's status to male sports that I think women's sports need to hopefully produce in some way. Um, so with that, I, I think it's more the investment, and, and not just monetarily, but it's, I don't know, I think we, we don't understand that men's sports has been backed for so long. It's got so much history there, and we're just getting started. And, but yet people love to compare us. I mean, I could do a whole podcast, honestly, about men and women's sports getting compared unfairly. It's, 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 it's just not accurate. All right, let's do that at a future time. Um, Mike Mon, did Sue Bird lie to us in any way? No, but we were correct that stupid men are willing to talk anytime. <laughs> uh, I think it's interesting what you talked about. There needs to be an investment because a growing fan base takes time regardless of gender. If you look back at the history of the NFL, it struggled for many decades when it was first launched and almost went out of business four different times. They had very small crowds, not much money, and the prevailing sentiment was that football should be a college game and the notion that you would watch grown men play football was almost appalling. So if you look at how the WNBA is moving, it's growing slowly but steadily. It takes time and investment to grow this fan base. And if that investment is given, many uh, suppose that that would have a similar effect to what happened with the NBA when it was given time. Now looking at women's competitiveness generally, two quick comments there. I can't help but think of Serena Williams coming back uh, so quickly post-pregnancy. There have been many unbelievably competitive male athletes who couldn't come back from that. In fact, I couldn't find a single instance of a male athlete accomplishing <laughs> a post-pregnancy comeback. On, on the personal side, I totally believe that women are very competitive. And to be clear, if Sue challenged me to anything athletic, I would admit to defeat on the spot, run away, and grab a donut. <laughs> so what do you want to play? <laughs> donut eating competition. <laughs> Mike, thank you. Sue Bird, thank yeah, you so thank much. You Great to have you. Awesome. I now see why people say the great things they say about mm -hmm. Sue Bird. That was great. Uh, our next guest is the CEO and co-founder of DraftKings, a tech platform known for da daily fantasy sports and increasingly... Wow, sorry. I'm so sorry. Our next guest is the CEO and co-founder of DraftKings, the tech platform known for Danny... F wow. I'm not used to doing shows in the afternoon. We usually drink all day, then do a show at yeah. night. So sober is plainly not the way to work. I'm sorry. All right. You think so? All right, thanks. Notice it was a woman who said I can do it, not a man. There are like 24,000 men for every one woman here. You can do and, it, Stephen. All right, thank you. There we go. 
Our next guest is the CEO and co-founder of DraftKings, a tech platform known for daily fantasy sports and increasingly for online sports gambling. Would you please welcome Jason Robbins. You take your time and get comfortable with the mic at your level if you want. Okay, but after watching Sue, one request, please no questions about how hard it is to be a white male tech CEO. Okay, all right. It's a, it's a deal. So pretty hard, is it? Really? Yeah. yeah. So, Jason, um, the U.S. Supreme Court recently struck down the 1992 federal ban on sports betting. Can you describe your emotions that day and perhaps what you did to celebrate? Uh, well, I was pretty excited, also relieved, because it was something we had just been waiting for. Um, the Supreme Court has this wonderful approach of just not having any sort of commitment or schedule as to when they're going to post certain decisions. Sometimes a decision will be posted on a certain day, but it could be anything. They don't go in order. So we were literally watching it every single day. I would refresh it at like 10 in the morning or whatever it was, every single day for like a month, two months straight. So finally, I was just like, thank God I don't have to do this anymore. And that was it. It was it was relief. Okay, but then the result. I, mean, I was certainly happy. And did you did how much did you know about what, what the result would be? Well, I think by the time I actually read the first line, I already had 50 text messages on my phone. Mm, right. So, um, and they all were saying bye bye PASPA, you know, stuff like that. So, I figured it was good. Um, then I read through just to confirm before I allowed myself to get even an ounce of excitement, but. Uh, you know, it was pretty clear in the opening part of it that that's what they were doing. I have to say, you do seem like a very excitable human. Standing, I am. You know, yeah. the, right. People tell me that. As a person who uh, rarely had money, I don't gamble that much. I placed one sports bet uh, some years ago on the Timberwolves. I won, but I didn't know that I won, and so I had to dig the slip out of the garbage can at the Las Vegas sports book that I placed the bet. Could you explain to me, an absolute neophyte, how daily fantasy works? How what? How so, daily fantasy works. How does it work? Well, one quick I'm looking thing for that easy to money. respond to what you said is it's kind of crazy in today's day and age that you actually had to have a slip of paper and the fact that it went in the garbage meant you couldn't cash your bet. Um, so, you know, a little bit ripe for innovation in this industry, I think. Uh, daily fantasy is very similar to fantasy sports, which means you pick a roster of players. Those players can be across any of the games going on in that day or that weekend for NFL. And then their stats get translated into fantasy points. So in football, for example, 10 yards is worth a point. Touchdown is worth six. Uh, after they get translated into points, all your points get added together, and you go against other people and whoever's team does better. So the idea and why they call it fantasy is sort of like you're putting together this fantasy team as a general manager. And uh, people who are into sports um, who aren't very good athletes like me, um, I was not as good as Super, believe it or not. Uh, when it came to playing basketball. Um, so I got a lot of my enjoyment out of looking at stats and analyzing. and um, So that's, that's really who that type of game is built for, which is most of the people who follow sports, I think. Can I just ask the audience, um, raise your hand if you do play at least one fantasy sport pretty regularly? Yeah, so what is that, Jason, like 91%-ish? At this, at this conference, I'm not surprised. Yeah. Um, so let me ask you this. One long-time concern over sports betting, which has been happening, you know, people have been betting on sports forever, um, and, and a concern for good reason is corruption, um, including match-fixing. So I'm not saying I want to do this, but if I did... I do. Okay. <laughs> what would be the best sport to fix and why, and please be as specific as you can, including um, phone numbers of the athletes, coaches, or referees <laughs> that you're thinking about? That's a loaded question. Um, 
I think any sport that's still not offered in legal regulated books that's uh, available on the black market, which is any sport that's not offered in legal regulated books, uh, would be easier to fix because there's just zero oversight. Um, and really the whole point of bringing this out of the shadows and into the, mm. the legal regulated market is to eliminate, I guess you can never totally eliminate, but to at least reduce and catch quickly when those things happen. And uh, I think you're going to see maybe more press acting like there's more scandals. What it might be is more things actually start getting caught now that you're bringing things into the legal and regulated market. How do you, what are the things you look for when you're trying to figure out if a certain match is fixed? Well, I mean, it's not really something that I look for, mm. um, but we have people who monitor betting activity, and you just look for anything unusual. For instance, if there's a first-round match in the Australian Tennis Open, and there was $100,000 bet on there being a double fault on the third serve in the eighth game of the fourth match, for instance, right. correct? And you would actually look at that as an attempt. We would never accept a bet like that because mm. it would immediately raise flags. So that's the kind of thing you look for is people attempting to get large action down. Unfortunately, as long as the black market exists um, and as long as things that aren't able to be bet in the legal regulated market do exist there, that's where people are going to gravitate, but um, you would look for that type of attempt. When yeah. you try to curtail that kind of attempt, is that something that you regulate yourselves, or are those regulations imposed by the authorities who let you operate? Uh, so there's a mix. It's certainly on both the operator um, and others to collaborate on this, but you know, the good thing here is it's not in our interest as a business. We lose when fixes happen and people make big bets against them. So we're about as motivated as anybody, even outside of, you know, the altruistic view as, uh, you know, a fan of the sport to make sure that doesn't happen. Uh, in 1993, at the peak of his career, Michael Jordan retired and said the following, five years down the road, if the urge comes back, if the Bulls will have me, if David Stern lets me back in the league, bum, 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 I may come back, uh, conspiracy theorists for generations have seized on this comment as uh, evidence that Jordan was forced to retire because of his uh, gambling issues. Uh, is it true? What do you think? What, is, what does your heart tell you? If I knew that kind of information, uh, I would be uh, much more plugged in than I am. Um, <laughs> I was a huge fan, and certainly I loved watching Jordan, and um, I think it was a bit of a head-scratcher why he went to play minor league baseball, but um, he's also a very competitive guy. So. You know, at that point, he was clearly at the top of the NBA. Maybe he wanted to feel like he could go and dominate another sport. And when he realized he couldn't, he came back. But, um, you know, it's hard to say. It's not something I would really have any knowledge of. Which of the major sports leagues in America have been most, um, have been warmest toward daily fantasy sports or sports online, the burgeoning market for online sports betting generally? Um, you or know, let me, sorry, let me ask a different question. Who's, who's most scared of it, honestly, is what I want to know. <laughs> Well, that's actually, a, amazingly, a better question now. And if you had asked that 10 years ago, um, the first question you asked would have been the better question. But most of the sports leagues first, have been First time it would have been MLB, I'm guessing, was... MLB is probably one of the most supportive right, right now. earlier. But earlier, it was totally different. Right. Um, I think a lot of it where there were commissioner changes, there's also just change in sort of the nature of the consumer. And I think people are realizing that... The more and more that uh, you know the fan base ages, they got to figure out new ways to engage with young fans. And young fans want interactive experiences. They want games. They want things that they can bet on. That's just the reality. So you can fight it, or you can go where your fans are. And um, usually, the better business move is to follow the consumer demand. So, which league has been the least cooperative? Not I don't mean cooperative with you per se. They don't really need. Well, I guess you do want them to be, right? 
Yeah, I mean, the Antarctica uh, lacrosse league <laughs> has been really, really tough. Uh-huh. Um, so Le'Veon Bell famously sat out the entire NFL season in, in a contract um, dispute with the Pittsburgh Steelers. So once he signs a new deal um, with a new team, what share of his earnings do you think should be redistributed to the fantasy players who had Bell on their team in the previous year? You know, I've heard that uh, they're going to have massive wealth redistribution, so why not extend it to players, to fantasy players? Um, no, in all seriousness, I think that Le'Veon Bell made a mistake doing that, but I also don't have any of the information, and it's actually good. Most athletes don't have the luxury at that stage of their career of being able to sit out, so I think it's good for him that he was able to do that, and, um, you know, I'm sure it'll work out and he'll end up on a great team. You think he made a mistake? Why, though? Uh, I just think that, you know, as a running back, you have such a limited uh, window, and mm. I get he wanted to get paid, but, um, you know, I think the danger for him is that that doesn't end up happening. Uh, I think in this case, though, it's going to work out, so I guess the result was a good one. Um, I shouldn't say it was a mistake. At the time, I should have said I thought it was a mistake. I guess now it looks like it's going to work out for him. Hey, can you talk to us a little bit about how pro sports teams or leagues um, make use of data generated by DraftKings and other fantasy sports platforms? How do the leagues make use yeah, of it? Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know that the leagues are really making great use of fantasy data at this point, but it's something they're very interested in. Uh, we've shown a lot of different looks at different, uh, you know, behavioral things that give you insight into the fan to some of the execs at different leagues, and they're fascinated by it. Um, but I don't know that it's something that they're really actively looking at now. Mm -hmm. um, was, there, was, there, was there a point when you thought that uh, this business would not fly? Uh, was there ever a point when you would thought would just wouldn't fly? Was there ever a point when you thought, well, if the Supreme Court uh, decision doesn't come, go our way, what are we going to do next? And what was what was your backup going to be at that point? Uh, when the state of New York's attorney general uh, was coming after us, at that point, it was yeah. pretty tough. And um, thankfully, you know, uh, thankfully that he's out well. going to prison, right? Though yeah. I mean, that's, he should be, yeah. but I don't know. If well, he is. but wait, can you back back that for, <laughs> so for people wow. who don't follow? Um, New York. So I am from New York, and yeah. about 80% of our politicians end up in prison. You should know that. But the case of, well, just talk a little bit generally about the New York case with DraftKings, mm -hmm. um, who it was pursued by. He, the Attorney General, Eric Schneiderman, then had a, 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 a major <laughs> issue that I'll let you explain to the, the degree to which you'd like. But just talk about that conflict between you guys and the state, because I'll be honest with you, as a citizen, as a taxpayer, it felt kind of like a state shakedown. Like it felt like a state saying to a business, no, we disapprove of this business. We're going to declare it illegal. But if you're willing to give us a cut of yeah. X or Y percent, then, you know, maybe it's a fine business. So that's my perspective. I'm guessing you're not going to put it in those terms, but I'd love to hear what you have to say about it. Um, I can see why it might look that way. Having seen it from our angle, I don't think that's what happened. I don't think there is any guarantee when uh, Schneiderman made the decision to come after us that the legislature was going to tax it. It just luckily worked out that way. Um, I think his aim was to shut down the industry, and that's what he was trying to do, and then whatever happened from there wasn't his problem. So, um, you know, I think in some cases uh, things just kind of work out that way because the system actually does work. Um, I wasn't necessarily a fan of how it worked in that particular case to get there, but the outcome was great for us. So. Um, you know, I think the system works actually more than people think. Uh, Mike Maughan, um, oh, sorry. Um, and let me just ask you, Jason, um, 
I'm guessing that you play fantasy sports still. Yes, I know that's how you began the business. Um, how'd you do this year and pick your favorite league? Uh, so I used to, when I was at my peak in college, I had over 100 fantasy leagues one year. I was down to three this year, and they were all in football because I just didn't have time for the other sports. I have three kids, five and under at home, so it's just completely So you have each it. of them running one of your teams, you're saying? I have never been worse at fantasy now. Right. Ironically, that I am running a fantasy company than I have ever been in my entire life. But it life. sounds like you're really blaming your kids. Yeah. Oh, it's completely their fault. I'm sorry, did you say 100? You said 100 at once? At oh. one year in college, I was in. It was not just one sport. It was across, like, tons of different sports. I was playing everything. I loved fantasy as a kid. So is um, college age typically peak participation for fantasy players or later? I think, you know, fantasy, as far as, like, the peak of it goes, just because um, it is time-consuming, Generally, if you don't have a whole lot to do, yeah. um, which in college often is the case, um, that sure, there's not a lot. Not, not there's not a lot of like educational stuff to be doing at that time. I mean, sort of some people <laughs> there is, others choose not to. Uh, but also, you didn't go to you know, Duke, you only did have you? A couple hours of class a day. You have a lot of spare time, and also you don't have kids. You don't have other responsibilities. Just as you go farther into life and you yeah. have more other stuff going on, it makes it harder for any hobby you have. I haven't, um, you know, skied in two years either. I'm going mm -hmm. a couple weeks, but. Um, I didn't ski in two years because uh, I had kids. I used to ski every single winter religiously. So um, lots of hobbies for me have kind of gone out of the way since starting the company and having three children. Mike Maughan, Jason Robbins has been telling us about DraftKings, fantasy sports generally, the coming wave of online sports betting. Um, do you have anything to check or to add? So many things. Jason just told us about a court case that they won. He said, defiantly, the system works. Sounds like incredible confirmation bias of every white male tech CEO when things work out. It wasn't a court case, actually. It was a law that got passed. Perfect. Law I'm passed. I'm fact-checking you. Uh, thank you. A couple of things that I would say on the sports betting uh, industry. The NBA and Major League uh, Baseball have tried to implement something they call an integrity fee. Because with this $150 billion illegal sports business, they want some profit because neither the teams nor the leagues get any of the financial benefit from people betting on or making money on their work, and they think that's enormously unfair. Sounds familiar, said every NCAA player ever. <laughs> Mike, thank you. Jason Robbins, thank you so much. Good to have you. Nice job. Our next guest writes for ESPN and is co-host of the new ESPN show, High Noon. Please welcome Pablo Torre. You good? Everything good? Historic moment in sports media as a, two Filipinos appear on stage oh, at the Sloan right? Analytics Concert. Shout out, to all, shout out to all the Filipinos here. We did it. We made it. Uh, Thank you. <laughs> Great. Pablo, uh, let's... Reggie Bush, Rashad McCants, Miles Austin, Aleko Eskandarian, Chris Humphreys, Lamar Odo, Matt Kemp, Chandler Parsons, Rick Fox, Lewis Hamilton, James Harden, Jordan Clarkson, Tristan Thompson, Blake Griffin, Ben Simmons, all these players dated at one time or another a member of the extended Kardashian-Jenner clan. And I think it's important to note as we uh, were talking backstage that uh, you know, this kind of framing of these athletes as prey for these women is, is, is unfair. Uh, this is a relationship that is beneficial often more to the athlete than the, than the, than the celebrity. Uh, Kendall Jenner is more famous and successful than her boyfriend, Ben Simmons. So what is it about this 
Kardashian effect, which is the idea that an athlete's performance suffers when they date a Kardashian, uh, that fascinates us. And, and uh, in particular, is this effect real? Yeah, I mean, when I started dating Kylie in 2016, <laughs> I was in it because of her fame. Uh, but, but in all seriousness, we tend to frame this problem around these guys being entrapped or these naive targets when in fact, you know, this isn't Delilah cutting Samson's hair. This is not Odysseus being wooed by the sirens. This is not Yoko breaking up the Beatles. These are guys who are looking for the haircut. Yeah. They're going to take their yacht over to the sirens. And the reason is because they are men who like gaming the attention economy. That would be the most cynical interpretation. Or love, right? But the idea, the idea, <laughs> stop laughing at that. Some people actually are here looking for love. But the idea that these guys are targets as opposed to thirsty is really funny to me. What happens uh, to performance in, uh, before, during, and after dating a Kardashian clan member? So I and when paper. I say clan member, I realize that didn't sound right the minute I, it came out of my <laughs> mouth. I apologize. But it's with a K. Oh, wait a second. Hold on. Yeah, there are a lot of Ks. Uh, I have a paper written by an enterprising Harvard student named Maddie Chen, and we may now table all of that very woke prologue I gave you <laughs> because the effect is extremely negative. <laughs> um, so the idea of motive, right? Why do they get into this? That's the nuance, but the effect is crazy. So there is a statistically significant negative effect that meets the 10% level. Shout out to a room that actually gets that reference. Uh, but it's staggering, right? Ben Simmons, and again, this is on a percentage basis. There's a paper that I'm sure you could access online later. But minus 20%, Blake Griffin, minus 32%. Brandon Jennings, who I did not know dated Khloe Kardashian <laughs> until I read this paper, minus 42%. James Harden, minus 22 Jordan Clarkson, minus 73 Oof. Shout out to half-Filipino Jordan That's Clarkson. Right. Best Filipino basketball player of all time. Lamar Odom, minus 1.61, although... Extenuating circumstances there. Yeah. I don't know if you've heard Stephen A. Smith's theory on the Mar Odom, but <laughs> if you do, it's a great reference I just made. Um, <laughs> Miles Austin, minus 52.65. Kristen Thompson, research ongoing, but <laughs> minus 18. Hey, the so these deficits are in what, though? What's being measured exactly? Yeah, this is a percentage decline as a matter of an advanced statistic that I'm ruffling this paper to find out because I'm literally <laughs> stealing the work of a Harvard undergrad. Okay. Um, but wind shares per 48. Mm. Okay. Standard, standard right. stuff, guys. Uh, but the one exception is Reggie Bush. Wow. Shout out to the OG, Reggie Bush, because he went up 20.3%. Hey, does the study control, though, for dating non-Kardashians? So, so in other words, you know, is it just the fact that if you... Okay, so presumably if you date someone that's very visible and maybe, you know, maybe there are other adjectives to go along with it, then that could have an effect on your work life, et cetera, et cetera. But does it necessarily have to be a Kardashian? So there is more research in this that extends to people of public profile whether it be TV anchors, whether it be mm. other celebrities, none of that was as statistically significant mm. 
as dating wow. a Kardashian. Is it possible that there's a little bit of a regression to the mean issue here in that you only get to date a Kardashian once you've started playing above your actual ability? So I thought wow. about this. I thought wow. about this. Give it up for a regression. Uh, I worked at Sports Illustrated, right? The SI cover jinx famously was mostly about how, as someone who wrote two consecutive cover stories on Jeremy Lin, uh, you do it because the peak seems to be at hand. So the counterpoint would be that Brandon Jennings dated Khloe Kardashian. <laughs> Shout out to everybody who knows anything about Brandon Jennings. It seems to me this uh, study is somewhat incomplete. I'm, I'm wondering why uh, we're not also tracking the relative quality of Kendall Jenner's makeup line uh, while she's dating these various people. Well, what about the uh, performance in uh, Keeping Up with the Kardashians? Why aren't we tracking that at the same time as uh, these relationships are going on? It's a great point. Ben Simmons and I have hit the exact same number of NBA three-pointers. <laughs> I'm just saying, like, maybe the reason Kylie and Kendall had to shut down their fashion line was the guy doesn't really space the floor. I don't know. <laughs> Do you have any research on the kind of people to date that make you play better? Oh. Mm. I would like to think that dating a therapist would be very useful. Um, but I would love and welcome that further research. Um, no, I, I would imagine that, I mean, look, my personal philosophy, and by the way, as someone with the TV show, I am definitionally a fame whore so I can speak to this, but like my fear is simply like, I would like no one to ever see my loved ones on social media. I mean, Adam Silver yesterday was talking about this, right? Mm -hmm. How people are anxious and depressed, and I have to imagine it's because people are inviting strangers yeah. to comment, maybe even on stage at an analytics conference, <laughs> about their romantic histories, and so I would imagine that discretion might be helpful. It's interesting, Pablo, I see um, on your Wikipedia page that you grew up in New York and your dad is a urologist and your mom is a dermatologist. So to me, like the Kardashian story brings together your entire background. Yes. <laughs> in a beautiful way. It really does. I didn't have a question about that. I just wanted to make the observation. No, I regularly marvel at the poor, uh, what is it, circumference, like small pores? Yeah. Mm. Um, and there's a joke that I would get fired if I was going to say it after that, dealing with urology, so I will decline. Ah. Shout out to ESPN president, ah. Jimmy Pitaro, <laughs> in attendance, possibly still today. Mike Maughan, Kardashian curse. According to Pablo Torre's rendition of recent research by a Harvard undergrad named Maddie Cheng, correct? Um, seems to be real with pretty significant magnitude and seems to have some legitimate explanatory power. Is there anything further you can tell us about that? Yes, it's interesting. So one, everything that he said turns out to appear to be correct, though I don't totally trust. Just kidding. Uh, <laughs> but the people that are worst to date if you're an athlete are reporters. Wow. And, that's, and then second is actresses. You don't want to date actresses. So on average, if you started dating someone who was famous, they looked at just famous people in general. If you dated someone who was famous, your performance dropped four 48%, and then after that increased 83% after the relationship ended. Uh, just as good advice for all of us, the best people to date, as voted in an online survey, are people who are funny, smart, shy, 
confident and athletic. Get out of here. Yeah, so that's why read, I just read those again. Funny, smart. Yeah, I just want to tell everyone really quick. My top five characteristics are funny, <laughs> smart, shy, confident, and athletic. So, I, I think part of that I have no idea, but part of that may be that this whole idea that people are seeking fame, they want this, um, they want attention, whatnot, and so maybe people like a shy partner because they can shine, and their shy partner stays in the background. Hey, I'm curious, is there, um, are there um, sort of, are there any characteristics that are, that seem to be common among the men who date Kardashians? Like beyond, you know, um, I mean, maybe it's athletic stuff. Maybe it's personality stuff. Maybe it's, um, you know, seeming ability to handle certain kinds of stressors that are, I'm just, you know, what do you know? I think it has to be an immunity to jokes, right? Mm. Like, if you walk into a locker room and everybody had previously, upon your entrance, been, like, making fun of the fact that you are dating said person, I feel like you need to be fairly psychologically resilient, right? You need to uh, not be bothered by the fact that we're all, yeah, we're all on TMZ. Hey, Ari, so that makes me wonder, then, if... Um one explainer for the poor performance, because you know, when you first hear this research, you'd say, oh, well, that means that you're doing whatever, you're, stay you're traveling more, you're staying up late more, you're getting distracted more, blah, 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 blah. Do you think it could be more internal? Do you think it could be more reaction response from teammates? Mm. Um, I would like to think that peer pressure on this subject can create certain conditions like that, but Again, Ben Simmons has made zero threes, and so I feel like the peers aren't really getting to him on that either. Pablo Torre, thank you so much. Nice to hear from you. Our final guest tonight is a hometown favorite. He is the assistant general manager and analytics guru for the Boston Celtics. He is a three-time national quiz bowl champion. He's created board <laughs> games, and he was recently named one of Boston's most eligible singles. Would you please welcome oh. Mike Zarin? He's shy, confident, athletic, and funny. Hey, Mike. What's happening, guys? Everything's good. Let me start with the important stuff on the uh, um, eligible singles front. Um, oh, I see you. This has become a dating woo! show. Okay. It, Great. So am I to understand that being uh, an NBA stats nerd and a quiz bowl champ and a board game designer are qualities that are now considered assets for a single person? <laughs> um, I, I think uh, the fact that I had to be included on that list might tell you something otherwise. <laughs> um, there's certainly qualities that get you uh, a lot of, you know, 18 to 22 year old guys coming up to you at this conference. <laughs> Not my, not my target audience, sorry. But I, I want to go back to something you actually asked Jason about, the, the most easy sport to, to cheat at. Yeah. Because the only reason I even agreed to come on this thing was because the very first statistical thing I ever did, ever really, um, was to work with the other Freakonomics Steve, Steve Levitt, uh, on trying to find cheating in greyhound racing. And... Um, uh, Greyhound the dog, not the bus. Greyhound, right. I've never seen Greyhound buses race, but oh. maybe they do that too. I don't, I don't know. But uh, he, his theory is that horse racing is the easiest sport to cheat at because the horse won't complain if you tell it to finish fourth. 
Mike, you're an expert uh, in the salary cap, noted Wait, expert. I, I can't hear you really well. Oh, sorry. Mike, you're a noted expert in the salary cap. Um, that's your expertise. That's what you do for the Boston Celtics. Uh, is Kyrie going to resign? Is he going in the Knicks or what? <laughs> Adam, uh, Adam Silver was here yesterday, and I see a few NBA people in the audience, so I think I won't, uh, so won't comment on that. I'll pivot to another question. Uh, sports owners are famously some of the biggest proponents of free market capitalism that we have in this world, and yet sports leagues, particularly the NBA, let's focus on that, uh, with its revenue sharing and strong unions are built on redistributive economics and a relationship with organized labor. Uh, this seems like a really weird disconnect, and I'm wondering if you could comment on it. Why are, why are these uh, men fine with this in their hobby, but not in the larger world? I mean, I think the, the quick answer to that question is everyone wants the theory of capitalism out there, but when you have a really bad team and are worried about getting another good player, it's nicer to have one just handed to you. It That's, is. It's weird, though. Like, you go to Europe, right? And yeah. you end up in a country like, I don't know, we'll, we'll pick some European, Fran France. Yeah. There's a hugely socialized civil service system there. You can't just fire someone. Universal health care, all these things. But if your team's bad, you're down to the next league. So we let me ask you, have you ever, so right, so relegation and promotion are probably the single biggest, like, ob observational difference between European leagues for the fan, right? Um, there's a lot of things that happen different um, in business, revenue sharing in particular, et cetera, et cetera. Um, is there any way possible that relegation in any of the major U.S. sports leagues could, not only just could it happen, but would... Is there any way that the league, and by the league we really mean the owners, would buy into the possibility that it might make for a better product? Because so, I would argue that as a fan, the European Football League's having rele relegation and promotion, more important, promotion, totally changes the appeal of the sport. Yeah, I mean, you've got to ask a guy like Steve Ballmer if he wants to be in a league with the Erie Bayhawks, right? <laughs> um, the, 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 way they solve this, <laughs> the way they solve this in Europe, right, is... Um, there's, there's parachute payments if you get relegated. Yeah. So you're a team that used to be in the Premier League and now you're down in what they call the championship, even though it's not the championship because the Premier League's above it. Um, and you, for the next few years, you get some, some payments so your business doesn't fall apart. And it's the same thing if you get promoted. They, you know, you got to like maybe build a bigger stadium or something like that so they get some extra payments. Um, the other thing that happens in Europe that's interesting um, that I think our, our owners we're not super excited about is that the best teams get more of the TV money. Mm. So there's incentive to, to be really good, but it also sort of, in, you know, there's no salary cap there, so the best teams get more of the TV money and they sign more of the best players. Although they get more of the TV then, money for the domestic deals. For the domestic leagues, that's Whereas correct. the international revenue is shared, I guess, equally, right? I believe that's correct. Right. I'm not an, an expert on the economics of European soccer, but, but uh, it entrenches teams at the top. Right? Yeah, Mike will tell you one way or the other, and he's Googling it right now. Um, the teams at the top get more money, so they sign better players, so they stay at the top. And that's the system that the NBA owners have explicitly said they, they don't want. They want everyone to have a chance. Uh, pivoting off of that, the, the lottery, the NBA lottery, is uh, something that is debated, the structure of which is debated constantly, has been debated over the last several years, particularly with the Philadelphia 76ers uh, process tanking system. I haven't which, really heard of any of that. Have you heard of that? Uh, so, you know, obviously you're talking about a system that, uh, that incentivizes badness. Um, what, are the, what kind of solutions could be applied to this that could ameliorate really those? I haven't really spent any time have thinking you? about this problem. <laughs> um, well, 
Look, I, I think it's bad for our business anytime our fans think our teams should lose. Whether I think, I think the, the Knicks should lose. I think they should continue to lose. I want to be clear about that. As a What's Knicks that? fan, I would like the Knicks to continue to lose. You want the Knicks to keep losing? Okay. Please. So, so, but this is my point. It, it doesn't matter whether the Knicks, what the Knicks are actually doing. I think it's bad for our business. If the fans, some of the fans, we have a system such that they should want the team to lose. And um, so obviously I've, I've proposed a solution to that that the people have heard about. But we, we don't need to go into too much detail about this draft wheel. But basically you could, you could just take turns having top picks. Um, you know, so every five years you get a top pick and we could still draw randomly from that bucket so you can have a lottery show. Um, so that you know, Pablo's bosses at ESPN aren't upset. Um, but, but there's trade-offs, right? So that also means that every so often a good team would get a high pick. Um, my response to that, of course, is that right now we have every year a bunch of teams' fans want them to lose. And people are worried about every so often one good team getting a good pick. I think it's... It's, uh, it's a system we could, we could fix better. But on the other side, the league's doing pretty well right now. Um, the goose is pretty golden. We made a tweak to the lottery this year such that there isn't sort of this perceived incentive for teams to be historically awful, um, which there was a few years ago um, that maybe Philly was or was not responding to. Um, but the bottom three teams all have the same odds now. So there's, not, there's no benefit to getting from three, third worst to, to first worst. How much better if at all, have NBA general managers gotten at assessing the pro potential of college players? Because, I mean... Since I, when? Um, let's say 20 years. I mean, I know more about the NFL than the NBA, but like when I look at the NFL, it's remarkable to me. And there's been good academic research on this that shows that the best in the business at drafting are kind of terrible at drafting. And I know that the NBA is a different scenario. So. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think it's a little less random in the NBA, but not a lot. I mean, by the 20th pick in the first round of the draft, only 10 to 15% of guys are playing at you know, the level of a rotation player on a playoff team. And so, um, you know, if you're right 20% of the time with the 20th pick, you're twice as good as the average GM, but you're still wrong four out of five times. Right. And if you happen to be wrong the first four times, you probably don't, don't get to make the fifth one, right? So, so why aren't hard. you better? It's just really random, but, but it's better now than it was because we have better information. Mm -hmm. um, that but was one of the first things I did at the Celtics is we built the model of the draft, and, and then you know Daryl left and went to the Rockets, and I actually wrote down in an envelope the name of someone he was gonna draft, and he drafted him one pick ahead of us, and I'm still very Seriously? Wow. What was the name? Uh, you can look it up. Find a time when we're pretty lazy. Mike just tell us something over there. Yeah, um, Mike. Stop Mon. giving me assignments. <laughs> Google it really fast though, because. Yeah. All right. We'll give him eight seconds to Google. Daryl Morey envelope. There was cash in the envelope as well, or no? There's no cash in the envelope, but I did close the envelope before the start of the draft. Okay. All right, Mike Mon. Um, Mike Zarin, who is um, responsible for much of the Celtics' success, by the way, um, was involved in their championship year in 2008. I did want to ask you, Mike, the Celtics last won a championship in 2008. The New England Patriots win a championship like every five minutes. How much does that burn you? Um, not, not too, we, we live in the, or I think is the best pro sports town. And one of the, the best parts about this town is all of the owners and teams are friends. And we actually just had like a medical seminar with the people from all the teams. So we love them. That's my first answer. My second answer is we've still got 17. So it's okay. Right. Mike Mon. Anything Mike Zarin say strike you as patently untrustworthy? No, I, th I think it's important to recognize, obviously, that there is a huge influence of money in sports. Uh, a bunch of different researchers found that winning does increase exponentially with revenue. 
Perhaps one of the, the most interesting focuses on the impact of money in sports is that there are all these fairy tale stories about small market teams or, or teams that don't pay a ton uh, for the talent that they have and that they can do really well during the regular season and get into the playoffs because there's time during the regular season for statistical variation to level off. But once you get into the playoffs, it pays a lot to have a player who's 5% better because there's not enough time given a, a five game or seven game window for statistical variation to level out. And that's why we may have these Cinderella type stories where teams do well in the regular season, but the reason we don't see them continue to win is because they're not able to do that in, in a shorter cycle. Now, it's also important, I think, to note that sports analytics have now made it everywhere. Everybody's using them, so the competitive advantage that people had uh, in using analytics may have worn off. There was a big article in CBC saying that curling may finally be having its money ball moment. Uh, you know, so it substantiates my point that everyone's using analytics in sports. It also might be like that moment you saw your weird uncle with a man bun and realized that they aren't cool anymore and probably never were. Which hey, is why Mike has right. a man bun. Hey, <laughs> hey Mike Zarin, let me just ask you quickly um, in like 20 seconds. Um, analytics has been, you were among the early NBA analytics people, along with our um, patron St. Daryl Morey, obviously, at the Boston Celtics. Um, the promise, I think, to many non-analytics people was that it would be the magic bullet that will make you instantly do things better and win championships. And then when it's usually not, there's a kind of you know, post-fact skepticism where do you feel we are in the arc, and do you feel that you're gradually becoming properly appreciated? I, I think in our organization, it's gotten more and more such that that's not seen as a separate thing. And, and that's, right. the, 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 that's the sort of end state of the arc. Not that there's a lot more work to do, but you don't view this as a different type of stuff. It's just part of the things that we do. Right. And um, you know, hopefully that's the goal of things like this conference. I am sad to say that is all the time we have. I, uh, I learned a lot. I hope you all did too. I'd like to thank Mike Zarin, Pablo Torre, Jason Robbins, Sue Bird, and Darcy Norman. Thanks to Jason Concepcion Thanks. and Mike Maughan. Thanks to Jessica Gelman, Daryl Morey, and the whole Sloan MIT Sports Analytics Conference. And thanks especially to all of you for helping us make this episode of Freakonomics Radio Live. Good night. If you want to hear these panels in person next year on March 6th and 7th, 2020 in Boston, please register for the 14th annual MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference at sloansportsconference.com. This recording is the property of 42 Analytics and may not be published, broadcast, rewritten, or redistributed without the express written consent of 42 Analytics. Any opinions expressed by panelists are their own and do not represent the beliefs of the conference, 42 Analytics, or the MIT Sloan School of Management. 42 Analytics Educational, Inc. reserves all rights in the content.